Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I talked with Jessica Ryko, who is a professor in the Herberger uh, School of Film, Dance, and Theater. I hope I got that right, here at ASU. She's also affiliated with the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering. Jessica is, as she calls herself, a somatic practitioner. What that means to people outside of that intellectual space is that she's a dancer and she's a choreographer and she does really fascinating work with data and quantification and wearable devices and we talked with her about two of the recent installations and performance pieces that she did involving dance and haptics and data and data shed and it was really interesting. I've been wanting to have Jessica on the podcast for a long time so I was really excited to have her with us today. Uh, Before we get started, as always, thank you for listening to Future Out Loud. Uh, You can get Get information about what we're doing and all of our previous episodes on our website, futureoutloud.org. You can also find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, and on Google Play. You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud, and you can find us on Facebook at Future Out Loud as well. Thank you again for listening. Please tell your friends. And now, on with Jessica Ryko. Hey, Jessica. Hey. Hi, Andrew. (laughs) So, Jessica, we have brought you here today to talk about embodiment and dance and technology. So, go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, hmm, Okay, so I guess what we talked about before is a little bit of both, like, maybe a good question to start with in this context is, like, why is a dancer working in human-computer interaction design spaces, and what does that mean? Yeah, because... Would that be interesting? Well, yeah. my favorite part of that is that <laughs> not only do I get to function in some of the same circles as you, but that your name got brought up in a, like, <laughs> Department of Homeland Security meeting yeah. as, you know, the example of why interdisciplinarity is so important. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious about the context, but... Um, <laughs> no, no, it's but, fine. Yeah, no, it's good. I, I think it's um, one of those things, right? I, I always find myself in these really um, non-traditional dance spaces, I think in part because having worked interdisciplinarily for so long, I start to see my practices less as a practice and more as like just another form of discourse. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to think about bringing bodies and all of their capacities into a discourse around things in which we oftentimes sort of cut the body out as an inconvenient or messy place or a place that isn't necessarily needed because we have language mm-hmm. that is verbal or textual or what does that mean to think about a sort of like implicit embodied understanding of things that feel like they don't really have a space in that discourse. So one of those most obvious places is technology, right? Particularly mm-hmm. digital technology. Um, so much of our digital technologies t- sort of accommodates bodies or corporeal senses of being as like maybe secondary tertiary or even further down the spectrum mm-hmm. of like 
considered, like even being considered in the discourse. And so for me, a lot of my work is sort of flipping the script on that and thinking about um, bodies and, and our multi-sensory experiences being sort of formative to the ways in which I want to think about things. In part because we all do that all the time. Like we live in bodies. Um, we are embodied. Um, mm -hmm. We sense our world through more than just our eyes and ears. Um, our bodies are actually, our, our haptic sense of touch is so crucial to how we orient ourselves in our world. And, and a lot of times we talk about that within dance as sort of like a moving body. Mm -hmm. um, that I, I, I wonder like what it means, I think a lot about like what it means to bring that up in places where it doesn't even feel like it fits. Right. <laughs> right. So the first time I heard your name ever was yeah. when you were doing the installation, I think is the correct noun, yeah. um, last year or two years mm -hmm. ago um, with Jackie, who yeah. has been on the podcast, yeah. about um, basically the haptic embodiment of mm. data shed. Mm -hmm. Is that, am I getting that Yeah, all Yeah, so vibrant right lives. Do you yeah. know what this is about? No, I don't. Oh, so, so I'll give like a, me, please. Yeah, yes. I'll give like a two, like the sort of like 30 second spiel and we can dig into it a little bit. So Vibrant Lives is sort of a two-year project that was um, really interested in what it means to feel data. Um, that's like the broad spectrum. So what does it mean to feel data versus see it or hear it? Mm -hmm. uh, and we were very specifically interested in looking at personal data output or like the amount of data that we output on a regular basis through our personal devices. And we kind of liken to this metaphorically to this idea of data shed or like thinking about like exhaust or skin cells, mm -hmm. like these things that we're really constantly- shedding it rather yeah, than- Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, British, not, not like a shed. A shed. I'm glad we got that out. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> right. So thinking, thinking about this sort of like uh, this idea of like the, the messiness of that, mm -hmm. um, the ongoing nature, right? Like we're constantly shedding things off of our bodies all the time. And again, it brings it back to a corporeal sense. Mm -hmm. um, but we think about this idea of like, we are literally outputting massive amounts of personal data on a regular basis. And we can say that to people and then it's usually like, oh, that's cool. Or like interesting, you know, you get like that sort of like one word response of mm -hmm. interesting. Right. But what does it mean to give it? So we were really interested in like, what does it mean to feel that? So like if I could feel the amount of data that my phone is outputting, how would I come into relationship with that knowledge in a different way than if I saw a graph of it? Right. Or even heard someone say it or like heard an abstraction of it. So um, we built a series of installations that allowed for people to feel and hear their data output in real time. Mm -hmm. um, and it came in multiple forms, in part because haptics or touch-based feedback as a field is sort of in its, um, it's growing really mm -hmm. quickly, but a lot of it hasn't really been discovered or explored yet. And there's, I can go into a multitude of reasons as to why that is. But um, we were just starting to explore touch um, of personal data or data in general in this very simple way. And so to make it palpable to people who are listening, it basically was uh, the more data you output from your devices, the more sensation you would feel, and that sensation was for, in, through the form of vibration. Mm -hmm. So we were using infrasonic subwoofers or tactile transducers that would transform sound into into touch. And, and you could feel that. This is cold body, this is sitting on a chair or standing? Or it could be, so we did m multiple versions, right. in part because we were really interested in like, okay, the easiest way to talk to explore touches to do multiple types of surfaces right. and mm -hmm. sizes of surfaces. So the first version we did was wearable. So it was actually ended up turning out more portable. It was okay. it was supposed to be a wearable transducer called a, a Wooger. 
um, which was made to like for speaker tweakers who wanted to like carry around feeling mm-hmm. their data all day. Mm-hmm. Or not their data, I'm sorry, this is for music specifically. Right, right. But you could, you you could, could wear it. it to data. But it was, yeah, you can, we, we, we did. We hacked it for data. But um, you could feel it and you could wear it. So this was the first version we did. We found that people tended to hold it. I think it was more of a f- um, result of the technology itself, this sort of like consumer technology that we were repurposing than it was the intention. So we moved into sculptures. So we did a series of sculptures that were wooden. We worked with uh, Bobby Zokidis, who's a local sculptor, to make three different sort of sculptures that feel like you could sit or lay on them, but didn't tell you exactly how to do that. So they're curved in nature. So it allowed for people to kind of play on them, roll on them, lay on them in different ways. Um, and offered pe- So people wouldn't just sit. Mm-hmm. We wanted to sort of like allow for people to experience multiple surfaces of their body mm-hmm. in relationship to this information. And so it was sort of surrounding them in a different way. And then the last thing we did was a, um, I hand crocheted a giant net. It's about 20 by 40 feet now. Wow. Um, it's and it's made out of paracord. Right. So mm-hmm. it's synthetic, which means it does actually, when, when stretched, does transduce quite well mm-hmm. vibration. And so this way, it was sort of like this very delicate looking, even though it was quite structurally sound infrastructure, this complicated looking web that you could touch and people would sort of lightly touch it and then feel data resonating through it. Right. Mm-hmm. So three very different relationships to bodies, three very different relationships to visual aesthetics, mm-hmm. three very different relationships to data, really. And, and how, how did people respond to this when they were interacting? Um, you know, the thing I love about doing interactive installations is people usually come first with questions. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the really beautiful thing about doing sort of these immersive installations is because it, it sort of switches the agency to the ex- person experiencing the installation to lead the conversation. Right. And so one of the first things that people are like, well, what is this? You know, like, what is this I'm experiencing? And we'll kind of give them the two sh- second spiel. And then the next thing is usually like something around, well, why do people need my data, mm-hmm. right? And so then we start digging into like these really deep questions around like what is personal data or like who's on the other side of this data mm-hmm. is a question we ask. Or like why is, why is it when I'm not doing anything, my, my, I'm still feeling it. Right. Yeah. You know, right. So then we get into these types of questions where if, if people spend time with it or, or like um, why why am I outputting so much data when I do this thing? Or like, oh, I'm looking at my personal photo of my family and it's, and I'm feeling the output. Like, I don't know how I should feel about that. Right. And so it puts it into this really strange affective space where people start just asking a lot of questions. Um, and then we can discuss it. And a lot of times we're saying, you know, we really don't know. We don't know, like, why people want your data. Well, I mean, we can talk about that, but, like, there's a lot of reasons why people want your data. Right. and. And there's, there's a lot of reasons why your phone might be vibrating right now. Some of it may be because the data's going out. Some of it may be because your phone is just asking for permission to do a thing, you know? Right, right. So there's multiple types of, of output. And, and it offers us to, like, have these type of conversations that people wouldn't regularly have or ask to have. Right. And I mm-hmm, think that's mm-hmm. really interesting. But I love this idea of making the invisible visible. Yeah. Because you, you take it from the domain where people, mm-hmm. the default is people just not thinking about yeah. it. It's people being forced from actually thinking about mm-hmm. what's happening, yeah. how is it relevant to me, um, how is that connecting me to other people, yeah. and should I be worried about it? Yeah. yeah. And I, I would even reframe that slightly and say making what's invisible f- 
tangible. Of course. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Well, I joke about that because yes. um, there's a lot of writing that looks at the ways in which touch is likened to vision as a way of, because we, it just, mm-hmm. for me, demonstrates even sort of like in our, in our natural language how we always resort back to vision. And it's not a critique, but it's just an interesting observation. Yep. And I think for me, it's also really, and I do it all the time too, P.S. Um, but <laughs> like, I think it's really interesting to to trouble these notions of visual as sort of the dominant form of sensing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And this is coming from my somatic practitioner's perspective or like movement-based practices and in, 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 um, embodied practices through that are um, come from a myriad of places. But it's really interesting to think about like how universalized vision has been in the way that we frame knowledge. Right. Yes. Um, and how that is sort of one of many ways that we anchor ourselves in our worlds. And in fact, if we look even sort of like pre, like in, in our um, development in the womb, our vestibular senses are like the first thing to form, mm-hmm. right? And so our sense of touch is mm-hmm. actually what forms first. It is what anchors us in our experience of the world. It's just because we, it is so foundational, we tend to put it into subconscious really quickly. Right. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's really fantastic to think about like ways of re, re, making people aware again of that felt experience of the world mm-hmm. uh, and how we could utilize that in ways of understanding things that we would never ever imagine as being touched or felt. So, so as you do that, do you find that people react in a very different way to touch compared to if the same information is presented visually? Or Absolutely. Because it's so funny how, um, well, I think part of it is experience, right? Like we're just, um, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm being very blanket right now, but like traditionally we're not asked to think in and through our bodies through, t- you know, like installations or information right. like mm-hmm. data. Yeah, yeah. And so it becomes a really foreign space for people. Right. And so there's a lot of what we call like somatic seeking, which is where we, people just sort of drop drop down, and I'm, I'm doing it because you can't see me, can't see me but <laughs> it's so like good for radio. <laughs> right? so, talking about touch and radio, well, okay. Yes. But yeah, it's so like people just sort of settle. They settle in their bodies, and they just sort of, you see that what we call like body seeking, where they just sort of like, you can tell, it's like when someone's deep listening, mm-hmm. it's the way the body sort of like gravitates towards the source of information. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me is such a profound moment for people and to do that even in like really busy spaces to see people drop in because we we're used to doing it but we're not always used to doing it around data mm-hmm. and so i find that really fascinating and, and so they, there's this sort of like dropping in that happens it's super um subconscious but also hyper conscious at the same time and then there's a lot of questions because there's there's a need to anchor. Right. Whereas when we go into visual information, people are so astute with it, they just start going into like hyper like um, contextualizing or like go into problem like um, problem solving right, right away. Right, mm-hmm. right. Which I find really um, there's not the same sort of openness because there's just sort of already a sort of like a formative framework. In so, which so in many ways, mm-hmm. you're beginning to circumvent some of the biases we have built in. So, yeah. and certainly when you're looking at visual data, yeah. um, that's when those biases kick in and our yeah. heuristics in terms yes. of how we interpret mm-hmm. things. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. And, and it's and it's just like a reawakening for me in some ways. It's not to say that people don't know. It's just we've practiced. Like I said, I joke about this a lot, but I mean it very seriously. We practice our bodies out of our way of knowing the world. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and and so it's sort of like reawakening that for me. And for me, from just like a sort of um, somatic practitioner's perspective, is like anytime I can get people to remember that they have bodies, right? <laughs> yeah, have a body, um, and that it's 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 a wealth of information is like a success for me. Um, but to do so in ways that we don't just to trouble this idea that like data can only be. Um, represented as visual information, or that data is only valuable when it can be dissected. Right, right. Yeah. right. So, so it seems a key question here, and I'd love um, to, to hear how you interact with scientists and engineers in mm -hmm. particular. So uh, an engineer would say, data is something quantitative that I can use to do something with, to make something, to make a decision. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the way you're describing this it is slightly different. I can imagine, and I'm putting myself <laughs> into the head of an engineer, mm -hmm. saying, okay, I can feel this, I can, sort of, I, I can sort of see what you're doing, sort of thinking about sort of bodies and physical space and things, but what can I do with this? Mm -hmm. How do you then respond to people that, that have that sort of reaction? Yeah, so I think part of it is just to say, why does data have to always be separated from ourselves in order to understand it? How is that, how is this not another understanding of right. information? Yeah. Right. So one of the things, um, um, or how are affective, I like to answer questions with questions, sorry. So this is an answer <laughs> very that very rabbinic of you. Um, yes. <laughs> so, so it's to say is like, how is an affective space not also a place of information? Right. So, right. so I think it's just, this for me questions, or trouble that idea that um, of like empirical practices, right? Where I have to separate myself from a thing in order to understand it. That um, and this is also sort of like somatic practices is like first person study of one's own body. So we really believe deeply in this idea of self study as a way to understand um, uh, the way in which we orient ourselves in the world and our own right. implicit biases. Yeah. Right? Is to say, well, how can you tell when you separate something out? And this is what I oftentimes say: is can you can you then tell the implicit biases of what you're doing? Right. Um, can you do you even question it when it's separated from yourself so deeply and that for me is like a sort of a place of like re-remembering that there are implicit biases in the way that we think about data the way that we organize data the way that we organize algorithmic processes right, and things right. like mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. and, and that's actually exactly why I, I asked that question mm -hmm. because that idea of data as being something you make something with or do something mm -hmm. with right. is a very narrow perspective and, yes. and of course when you start talking about information how you respond to it how you learn from yeah. it how mm -hmm. you process it yeah. That widens it out completely. Yeah, and it's just helping people re-remember that. Like right, I think I think right. of it that way. I'm like, you're you're right. Like you're not gonna be able to take a haptic installation and dissect it down into like a series of quantitative measures, right? right? But or it's gonna be harder to do that. But well, I don't know if you could. Maybe someday. But I think it's also to remember that that's not the only reason that we have data, or that's like right. not the only thing we can do with it. Um, and particularly because data is so invasive and pervasive in our everyday lives now, I feel like we need to think about other ways of coming to understand it. I think about this particularly too when it comes to decision making about people, um, and this maybe takes us into a little bit of the performance, mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. um, like when we're making decisions about human beings or about ex um, making decisions in general that have like a great impact on our world mm -hmm. um, why are we why do we feel comfortable taking that out of an affective space to do it right. right and that for me is like a really critical feminist question on top of it on top of being just one from an embodied practitioner's perspective is um, we assume that we like can separate our emotions from those types of decisions but to separate is an emotional socio-cultural decision <laughs> right. 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 right so it's sort of like for me it's just kind of messing that up a little bit and like twisting it just enough to like help us re-remember that those decisions are um, coming from a place of emotion, a place of, of um, culture, a place of 
methodology that is one mm-hmm. of many. Right. Yep. Yes. Well, Andrew and I just spent all day long in a workshop that one of the first things that they presented us with was an anthropologist who mm-hmm. said it's really critical for particularly for artificial intelligence technologies to remember that um, to, to put the human back into the interaction mm. with the technology and to not totally other mm-hmm, the technology. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's a lot of what your work does mm-hmm. is very explicitly bringing technology back to the individual and forcing that interaction. Yeah, and I would say um, maybe just because I f- maybe I think of my work as being more radical than it really is. It's probably true. <laughs> oh, it is. It but is, it's to, it's yes. to say instead of thinking of taking people and bringing it back to technology, is to say technology that has been made without people in mind is already problematic and we need to get rid of it and start from scratch again. Mm-hmm. And that for me is something like, or rehack it. Um, right. Is right? like, I think there's a lot of like this idea of, we hear the language so much in techno spaces of like, the sort of like the separate, like this sort of highly bifurcated sort of uh, dualistic notion of mm-hmm. like, if you just like lock these things back together, it will magically work. And I find as somebody who's been in spaces where I'm asked to do that, like mm-hmm. to come into a system that's already been made, this happens to be a lot, by the way, I should contextualize. So because of my practice and movement um, and the embodied practices that I do and my experiential design practices, I'm oftentimes asked to come into systems to quote unquote test them and right. to give feedback, right? Mm-hmm. To give multi-layered feedback about my, ex- my holistic experience. And what I find problematic with these types of scenarios is that oftentimes I'm brought in when that person is already emotionally, and I say emotion, mm-hmm. emotionally invested in what they've built. Right. And so they are not prepared to take feedback that might completely upend what they've created. And I find that oftentimes it's already too little too late, and that's typically methodologically and emotionally when people tend to bring in that kind of discourse. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's already, there's already too much investment to really do the work right, that needs right. to happen. It, it feels actually more like a validation. They want yeah. you to come in and say, this is great. Or right. like, you just need these little, to- these tiny little tweaks, right? Right. right? right. Um, so I think that's, that's part of what I'm really interested in, is like, if we just started from scratch and really thought about like our holistic human experience first, where would we go? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where I would go. I can't say it's where everybody would go, but this is some of the places that I would go to. Yeah. So you made, now you you created a really large scale work yeah. uh, this year, which was amazing. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and it, it, it included all of the things that you talked about. And one of the things that struck me was that it started with a very verbal interaction yeah. with your dancers, mm-hmm. with your performers. Mm-hmm. So can you, I, and I thought that was really interesting. I was not expecting that. Mm. I, and, and when I was watching it, I knew that it was coming because I had heard you read through this the script before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was still surprised mm. because it felt so... Um, so different than that haptic embodied experience. Yeah. So one of the reasons, and this was really strategic, um, one of the reasons, okay, so to paint the picture, the whole, before the, the formal performance, which is about 60 minutes long, we had an interactive installation where people could like dive into the material. So people were able to like play with the books, feel transducers, come up to the net, talk to the dancers. So they were sort of like immersed in the world that we created. Oh, and we should say what it was, what was the name of the piece? Me, my quantified self and I. That's right. Um, I like cheeky names. So, um, cause I mean, if you're gonna talk about data, you have to make it slightly entertaining. So. Mm-hmm. 
So, you, so I wanted people to kind of come in and be able to like zoom in and like feel the information first, like to feel paper, to like feel these different structures we had created, to come and talk to people, to put names to faces, to have a conversation before we went into sort of like performance mode where people were separated from the experience on stage or in this case in the warehouse. Um, so we did that first and the first thing we did after that once the formal performance started was a, a monologue. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the reason I did that is because I knew that with audiences who are not even thinking about data at all, right, like don't even know how to describe data, that I had to create some sort of a central identity for what data is before we could go into abstraction. Because mm -hmm. dance, I love dance as a form because it allows for us to imagine and it gives sort of a lot of agency to audiences to make up their own narratives or their own ideas or semblances of like what this thing means um, it gives a lot of agency and it also allows for us to take things that are ephemeral and allow them to still exist in ephemeral spaces as opposed to I would say reducing it to text as a way to make sense of it mm -hmm. um, but I, I realized too is like I ask a lot of people what they think data is and like nobody can really tell me mm -hmm. um, and so I was like if we don't define at least how we're thinking about it at the beginning then it's we're going to go through a lot of really, really amazing movement and people won't know why. Right. right. And so that for me was really critical is to like center the discourse and then expand from there. Mm -hmm. And the easiest way that um, I think to do that is to do it through verbal language because it's so familiar to people. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not anti-language. I'm just like, well, yes, mm -hmm. and. Yes. You know right. what I mean? So I think it's um, to... I'm, Somebody said this, and I'm not going to remember, but I think it's fantastic and worth saying anyway, is that I could make a dance and I could spend 10 minutes saying something, you know, trying to explain something that I could say in one sentence, mm -hmm. right? And so I would rather say the one sentence and then enrich it rather than try to, like, do all of the work non-verbally. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Yeah, right. that's fair. Right. One of the other things that I really was surprising and I really appreciated was that you gave the haptic... Uh, engagement that haptic experience mm. to the audience sitting in the yeah. bleachers. Okay. So yes, it was great. You don't always expect your chair to start vibrating. <laughs> yeah. um, sometimes people pay extra for that. Yeah. I'm just saying. Um, but it was now. But you studied it, and that's one of my other yeah. always questions in a university. Yeah. Is you know one of the things that we do is we we research yeah. and we try to science things. Yeah. So can you talk for a minute about like how did you science this <laughs> experience yeah. that you had or so, that you made? Yeah, so um, Lauren Hayes, a professor at Arts Mean Engineering and I, we work together on the haptics. So she comes at it from music and then I come at it from dance, which I think is a really interesting assemblage of people. Mm -hmm. um, so we decided we had put these risers, these temporary risers up in the warehouse for the performance and then we like locked transducers onto them and we, we were sweeping um, like some of the sound through the right. space. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't tied to specific data per se because we didn't have the time to build that part out yet. Mm -hmm. um, but what we wanted to do is to sort of think about um, how how haptics as an ex uh, part of this sort of like technological multi-sensory experience could be embedded and what that does to people's experience of a performance right. is mm -hmm. to like feel the sound, but not to feel the sound in sense of like your standard just feeling the subwoofer. Right. Yeah. Right. But like to feel that you can feel that it's moving and mm -hmm. that it's responding and that there's something behind it deeper. It's in in a way it gives us sort of like some like this notion or this 
idea of intelligence, that there's something seeking and that you can feel it, um, which was sort of interesting. So we were really just kind of starting to play with that. Um, and we wrote a paper about our previous work and sort of like the introductory experience for this for the Movement and Computing Symposium, which will be happening in London this summer. And so we'll be going there and talking about mm -hmm. that. And, what it, and part of that, again, is just like starting to question for me, which is like, how do we talk about haptics as a as an area of research with intake context out of it, which I don't think we can. So we're, that's kind of what we're playing with is like, we built that installation for that moment and we can't say that that same sort of setup would work in anywhere else. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, I don't know, that's kind of how we're sciencing it but by unsciencing it to a degree. Okay. I don't know if that helps answer well, your question. Well, it does, because it is what it is. Yeah. And, and I think that that's one of the questions mm. is, oh, you have this experience, now what do you do with the experience? Yeah. Right. Or must you do something yeah. with the experience? Or, you know, is it is it enough? Is it not enough? Yeah. And I think that was just like, the reason I'm being really sort of loosey-goosey around it is because it was kind of, to be totally honest, and I'm, I like to be candid about logistics, it was thrown together rather quickly. Um, and I feel like we weren't able to put as much time and thought into that component as we would have liked to, to really dig into it as much mm -hmm. as we wanted. But it did give us the opportunity to start to consider, like, how do we go about haptics as a research area? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a big question, and if I, I find that I'm really drawn to spaces of research that deal with technology that are really just are really problematic to empirical practices. Right. Um, right. Because that's how I've always felt about my work, is like I, yeah. I find that like thinking about bodies and thinking about somatic experiences and body lived experience is automatically troubling empirical practices. Um, by its very nature of like dealing with this multi-sensory experience. So, I don't know, I, I've, I've, I but, feel but, like a lot of the work I end up doing is but, like but this, but pushing this back is, against those But practices. this is one of the really interesting challenges of research, and mm -hmm. I talk about bias. We, mm -hmm. we have this bias that you do empirical research mm -hmm. in a certain way, and mm -hmm. anything that doesn't fit into that neat box isn't mm -hmm. valid. It's, it's and not capital R research. That's right, right. but yeah. there's a whole world of stuff which is important outside mm -hmm. that box, mm -hmm. which still has to be explored. Yeah, and, and also like, <laughs> um, is not validated by things that happen in the box. I always feel like I feel like a lot of times and this is some of the work that I I'm, this is why I still work in scientific spaces is to like remind people that it is a box and it's not as big as they think it is. Right. That's right. <laughs> right. Right. That is a I think a great place to uh, one thing that I want to know is where can people who are not on campus here at ASU see your work? Yeah. Um, so a lot of the ways that I tend to take it off campus is through the in, like shows, performances. Mm -hmm. um, the next thing I'll be doing, I'm going to say it, even though it's sort of so unrelated to this, this conversation, the next thing I'll be doing is a performance at Mesa Arts Center. They're going to be commissioning a piece of mine called I'm Not As Think As You Drunk I Am, um, okay. which is looking, um, isn't as verbal in the way that I built the process, but was looking at the ways in which um, scientific methods around, uh, or like scientific research, psychological research on drinking practices are intrinsically biased mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. speak very specifically to certain demographics of drinking um, and then imply those, those results um, or imp implicate everyone in those results, even though it doesn't necessarily um, relate to a lot of 
people's lived experience, particularly looking at people from like 21 to 30. Mm -hmm. um, so it's sort of like was a piece that I made that was sort of trying to highlight the, the many ways in which people go into drinking culture or like it sort of that go into that rite of passage mm -hmm. yeah. um, and how that looks very different than what we hear about in sort of traditional media or in, in the way in which like people want to research that, that subsection of people. So right. that will be happening at Mesa Art Center in October. So that'll be the October next October 2017. Thing. And yes. then are you, you have things up on the interwebs. Oh yeah, you're talking about the digital things. Yes, I have a website. It's called, it's just jessicareiko.com, R-A-J-K-O. I document a lot of my work there. Um, and I also, if you go there, you get access to uh, a lot of the ways in which I share my work is through Instructables and things. So mm -hmm. um, if I built things, I tend to try to like, give that information out, particularly around wearable technology, which is another area of research. So the goal is that everybody should be walking around with the box around their neck, right? <laughs> like experiencing their data shed, <laughs> perhaps in a warehouse. Perhaps, or, or just people should be walking around not completely tethered to their technologies in a way that um, isolates them from their surrounding world. Awesome. Yeah. Will you come back and tell us about the next thing? Sure. Please. Thank also, you. I've got a whole bunch of other questions as well. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Just scratching the surface. Yes. Perfect. Thanks, Jessica. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.